the strange and unexplained, the creatures of legend, monsters as they are known today. Every culture has a tale, leaving a question. What does the existence of biblical monsters say about God's creation? And where do these creatures fit into God's world? Looking through the lenses of scripture, discover why these monsters reign on earth. Only on this week of Tales from Enoch. Enoch, Enoch, Enoch. Well, I certainly had a great time starting this series off last week. And uh, those of you who are here, I uh, just gotten several reports from you. they just like, wow, that was just really just a blessing and learned so much. And um, so as we're in this series, we're looking at the mysterious monsters of the Bible. And so if you've ever read the Bible or parts of it, you'll come across some names of some creatures like, what is that thing, right? And it, some of the descriptions, you're like, that is just odd. Is that like real, you know? Uh, so in this series, we're going to be looking at kind of the, the origin of those monsters, why they were here, and God's role uh, with those. Now, last week, we looked at a creature called Behemoth, and as we studied that out, we, we basically ended up with description of a sauropod, which I think we have a slide for that possibly, and, um, but, you know, th- that's kind of what we concluded, that God had, had made this creature. In fact, is the biggest chief, he was the chief of the ways of God. He's the biggest creature that God had made. And so the biggest sauropod I think it's ever been found, estimated to be probably up close to 100 tons, several hundred feet long and uh, 50, 60 feet tall. And you say, why, why in the world did God make such a creature? And the reason why, when God was talking to Job about the behemoth, God was trying to tell him, listen, I made him to show the sovereignty and the supremacy of God. You guys agree that God is supreme and sovereign? Amen? So God's trying to prove, hey, this big creature, I can tame this creature. You you think you could walk around the block with him on a leash? No way, right? He says, no, I'm the chief of him. So, uh, So showing God's sovereignty, showing God's supremacy. So today we're going to be looking at God's perfection and also God's judgment on corruption. And we're going to be using and looking at a different monster in the Bible. Now, just as a disclaimer, we made this a PG-13 thing, so I'm glad that you guys got in. And, uh, you know, they ch- checked your ID at the door. And uh, so you're, you got in. And, uh, and so we're, we're kind of doing this because we're going to be dealing with a really a kind of a difficult subject on, on sexual immorality. Uh, but now, here's the thing. I'm going to give you a disclaimer. Uh, today's message is going to be like drinking from a fire hose. Has anybody ever drank from a fire hose before? Uh, I've seen it try to be done, but you, it, you, you're, you're in trouble. Okay. So here's the thing. You're gonna be, there's going to be a lot of stuff I'm going to be pouring out. Uh, and if you say, man, I would like to learn, learn more about this, I'd like to slow down and do some studying and, and find out, uh, we actually, our small group on Sunday nights, we walked through a study last year for about six months on angels and, and giants and stuff, and so it's, I have a 42-page document, and he's like, man, that's, that's a long document, but if you like to read and you like to study, I'll, I, can, I can email that to you, and then you can kind of get a grasp of what we're talking about, all the stuff that's going to back up what the sermon is about today, so... So today, we're looking at this monster called the Nephilim, the Nephilim, and their impact on God's creation and God's response to this particular creature. So if you got your Bibles, let's go to Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to check out this monster. Now, as you're going there, um, the Nephilim aren't just mentioned in Genesis 6, but they're mentioned in a few other places in the Old Testament. And the Nephilim had multiple number of tribes, 
They had various sizes. They had ver- many forms and many faces. And a lot of sometimes people will assume that these these Nephilim were not monsters, but they were maybe the uh, the first organized group of people or a nation, as we would call it. But as we take a closer look together at God's uh, word. Uh, we're going to find out and, and realize that this is an offspring of two different kinds of creatures. You could call it a genetic hybrid mutation, whatever you want to call it. It's just an offspring of two different types of creatures. Now, so here's what I'm going to say up front. The Nephilim were not created by God. The Nephilim uh, were created by, again, two different types of creatures. So this is a very controversial subject among Christendom. So if you've never been experienced to this or exposed to this, maybe you're a seasoned Christian, you're saying, man, I've never heard about this. We're going to, today, we're going to kind of get into a, it's a controversial subject, but I want to make sure that you know up front that there's a, a position that I take with this, and I'll get into this in just a moment. So Genesis 6 is where we're going to kick off, and uh, we're going to talk about the days right before the great worldwide flood. So Genesis 6, 1 through 4, check this out. Now, it came about that when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives. The word took there in the Hebrew means that they forcefully took them for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also, also his flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. Now, he's not saying, okay, man will only live 120 years old. From this point to the time of the flood, it was 120 years. So 120 years is all going to get cut off. Now, watch verse 4, because that's, this is the key pivotal verse. This is the one that creates a lot of controversy, a lot of confusion, and we want to we we nail it right here. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and when? And also afterward. The Nephilim were on the earth pre-flood and also post-flood. Okay? When? It says, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These children are the Nephilim. Those, these children of these Nephilim, were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, it's very important as we begin to kind of break this down that we define some terminology here because this will begin to make sense to understand it better. So let's look at the sons of God and the daughters of men. So what what is it speaking about the daughters of men? Well, the word man there, or men, is the word Adam. It's the daughters of Adam or the descendants, the female descendants of Adam. So these are the offspring of all of Adam's descendants that happen to be female, okay? The sons of God. The sons of God, what does that mean? Well, it's the Hebrew word, and, and I'm not very good at pronouncing Hebrew, so you guys just kind of, if you guys are like, if you're good at that, just forgive me because I'm probably going to butcher how you say it. I'm better at pronouncing Greek words than I am Hebrew, but the Hebrew word here, I'm going to do the best I can, B'nai Ha Elohim, okay? And what you say, what does that mean? It means sons of God. You say, well, what does that, what does that mean? Who are we talking about here? What's well, interesting, that, that phrase, sons of God, do you guys know that the Bible interprets itself? The Bible interprets itself. So you have one scripture, another scripture should be able to support and help interpret that scripture. The sons of God, this phrase, sons of God, is found four times in the book of Job. So we were in the book of Job last week. It's the second oldest book in the Bible, but it begins to describe in detail uh, the, the, the you know, creation and science and all these particular things. So the book of Job says the sons of God four times, and it's referring to the angels. 
The sons of God are the angels. In, in Job 38, verse 1 through 7, God is asking Job a question. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? When the sons of God sang for joy, he's speaking about the angels who were present when God has, was making uh, the earth and stuff the very first week of creation. So these sons of God are speaking here about the angels of God. Now, there's four theories, and that's where the controversy goes in. There's four theories on who the sons of God are, okay? It's kind of like you've got theories. People have all these positions about premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. Sometimes people have all this, they get into these arguments about that stuff. But here's the thing, and this is my position. The early church tradition and the Jewish historians had the same position, and this was the position that the sons of God were a group of fallen angels who had sexual relations with human women and had an offspring who were, in a sense, kind of demigods, or as it says here in the text, they were called Nephilim. The word Nephilim is a Hebrew word. It means those who have fallen. It comes from Nephal, which means to fall. And so the Nephilim were a byproduct of fallen angels. Now, this word here, this expression, men of renown, is, is an interesting expression. Uh, literally, it means heroes who were from old, men of name and men of fame. The Webster's Dictionary uh, defines renown here of men of supernatural or superhuman powers or demigods. These are legendary heroes, get this, whose stories became myths. You track it with me so far. These stories of these men became myths. Now, when we think about the word myth, oftentimes we automatically think of the word fiction. But the word myth is not fiction. The word myth means this, a traditional story concerning the early history of a people explaining natural or social phenomenon and typically involving supernatural beings and events. So this word myth, you can translate it as legend, you can translate it as fable, you can translate it as lore, or we can even use the word mythology. Now you're thinking, you know, hold on a second, Pastor, wait just a second. What are you saying here? Are you saying that these, the, the, these, these people, these, this Nephilim is where we get the stories of mythology? And I'm saying to you, yes. I'm not saying that we're supposed to study mythology. I'm just saying that these events, this phenomenon these, of, these, of these men of name and fame, these legends, these fables, these lores, mythology is simply this. It's the study of supernatural beings and events. So here's the thing. When you look at Roman mythology, you look at Greek mythology, you get, look at Norse mythology, all this myth is based on true events. Have you guys ever watched a movie and it said, based on true events? Now, the story you're about to actually watch is not fully true. Parts of it are true. So with mythology, as we understand with Roman and Greek and Norse mythology and other mythologies, these are things, these are stories that are based on true events, some sort of supernatural phenomenon and beings and events that happen. And as you know, you guys, you know, you guys ever met a guy that goes fishing? He said he caught a 20-inch bass, right? <laughs> right? So there's a story that happened, but... Some of it gets, begins to become exaggerated a little bit. So that's what mythology is. Now, I want to make this statement up front so that you understand the road that we're not going to go down. Paul warned Timothy two times, and he warned Titus. He says, hey, do not chase after or get consumed with myths, right? That's what he said. 
So we're not going to be going down the road of mythology, and we're not going to be going down the road of angelology, okay? We're just going to keep it straight to what we're talking about right here. We're talking about these Nephilim creatures. So let me just kind of give a couple summary statements before I get into the message, because I haven't even got to the message yet, okay? So, oh boy, okay, this is a long one, all right. So here's a summary statement. Number one, God made Adam and Eve in His own image. Would you, all, you guys agree with that? He made, them in, he made them in His own image. Adam and Eve then had offspring after their own kind. We call them humans. That's what you are. And then He commands the animals that He had made to procreate after their own kind. That's number one. Number two, the fallen angels made offspring in their image. So they took on a physical form. They forced women as wives. Then they procreated a different kind, an offspring known as Nephilim, which became the famous heroes of old. If you're tracking with me, just say amen. Very good. Now, but what were these guys? What were these Nephilim? Uh, if you translate it over into the, into the Greek, it, they use the word gigantus, which is a men-like, gigantic men-like creatures, okay? Giants is what we would say. Now, again, I said a few moments ago, Scripture interprets Scripture, right? So where can we find this Scripture to say, okay, these were actually giants? Well, we find this in Numbers 13. So you guys ever read the story when Moses sent in 12 spies into, into Canaan? So, you know, they, they all came out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They got the Ten Commandments, and they're going through the, the wilderness for 40 years. And then they kind of finally come up to this point where, hey, Moses has got to send some guys into the land to kind of figure out what's there and what they're up against. And so he sends in 12 spies. They go in, they search the land, and several days later, they come back and they report to Moses what they saw. Numbers 13, check this out. The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There, are all, there also we saw the what? We saw the what? The Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. We'll get back to that in just a minute. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. You ever, guys ever stood next to a grasshopper? Can you imagine the grasshopper looking up like, man, that's a big person, right? And so what they were describing is say, man, we saw giants, we saw Nephilim so big, we were like grasshoppers to them. Now, who are these sons of Anak? Well, Scripture interprets Scripture. So in Joshua 11, it talks about the sons of Anak, that they lived in Gath and Gaza, you go to 1 Samuel chapter 17, there was somebody named Goliath who was from Gath. Goliath and his brothers were descendants of Anak who happened to be descendants of the Nephilim. And so here we find that these Nephilim, as we saw in Genesis 6, they were before the flood and they were also after the flood. Now, the height of these giants varied from tribe to tribe. Goliath, they said, was probably somewhere between 9 and 13 feet tall. That's a pretty tall dude, right? I think that door over there is like six and a half feet. So you imagine like maybe double that size right there. It'd be just all the way to the ceiling. That's a pretty tall spot right there. And Amos chapter 2, verse 9, that there was, they described that one tribe of giants was as tall as cedar trees. Some of the cedar trees in those days and those places were as tall as 130 feet. The pre-flood Nephilim 
were known also as titans. The ancient people of those days considered the Nephilim monsters. They were terrified of their countenance. Their bodies were grotesque. They were odorous, kind of like the WWE guys. You know what I'm talking about, right? But these particular giants, some of them had double rows of teeth. Some of them had six fingers and six toes on each appendage. They were predators, sexual predators. They were violent. They hunted people. They loved war. Genesis 14 is a story of giant tribes and giant kings actually warring against one another because they loved war. Now you say, okay, pastor, all right, I get it. You know, that's cool. You know, so some angels that, you know, I, they, they, they had relations with women and then they had giant children. What's the big deal? And here's where we kind of get into the root or the main part of the message. In Genesis chapter 1, I want you to see this with me. I want you to notice how many times there's a, there's a phrase that's repeated. Watch this, Genesis 1. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their what? Kind. Say it with me. Cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beast of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was what? Good. It was good. Here is this repeated phrase, after their kind or after its kind. And so what God called good, track with me, what God called good is what He made. And what they reproduced after their kind, God says that is good. The Nephilim were not from one kind, they were from two. Now, do you guys ever read the book of Leviticus and you, you kind of like, you yawn, you know what I'm talking about, right? You're like, man, I'm, you're reading this and this, all the stuff is not making any sense. Or maybe you read the book of Deuteronomy and you're just like, I don't understand why you got all these extra laws and it just it doesn't make any sense. But it's interesting, when you read the book of Leviticus and you read the book of Deuteronomy, it's God is saying things to His people, His chosen people, about how to live, about that they were separate They've been called out from among the world. It's interesting, in the book of Leviticus, God says that the, that the mixing of creatures is forbidden. Why would God say that? Because it had been done. It had been done. Uh, Leviticus 19.19 19 says not to breed two kinds of cattle. Now, I'm going to see how smart you guys are. What do you get when you mix a horse with a donkey? A mule, Right? Did you know that mules can't reproduce? It's interesting, in Genesis 1, God, said, God says that the, the kinds of animals, they are to actually be fruitful and multiply, right? Same kind, same kind you produce, and you produce the same kind. When you mix a horse and a donkey, you get a mule, you're not able to be fruitful and multiply. That's it. Now, why, why did God have to, Moses write these particular laws well, here's the thing, in, in, in reference to humans, us, God's people were to separate from unholy unions. Track with me. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, God forbids homosexuality. He forbids adultery. He forbids incest. He even forbids bestiality. You guys know what bestiality is? 
That's people having relations, sexual relations with animals. That's kind of gross to think. Why did God lay that down? Because there are people that were doing it. And God says, no, that's an unholy union. Now, let's back this up some more. Okay, Jude verse 6 through 7. Now, Jude is a cha- it's just one chapter. It's right before the book of Revelation. And here's what it says. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. Since they are in the same way as these, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in the same way as these, as these angels is speaking of, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So this verse, and there's also a verse in 2 Peter that actually supports what I'm just talking about, and we see this. This is what we conclude. The angels crossbred with the human race, and in the same way that where they crossed the line, where they left their proper abode and they crossed the line, in the same way the Sodomites and the Gomorrites flagrantly indulge in an abnormal, unnatural sex, even with a different kind. And God says, that's an unholy union. If you've ever read Genesis 18, it's an interesting story. Abraham, we've heard of Abraham, God comes to visit him and he has a couple of angels with him. And they're talking about what they're going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's asking, you know, they're talking among us, should we reveal to Abraham what we're about to do? And the story goes on that basically that, that uh, it's revealed that Lot, who's nephew of Abraham, he's living down in Sodom and Gomorrah and He's finding out what's going to happen to the city, and he says, man, I, I need to have my, my nephew spared from this destruction. So the angels go down to Sodom, and they show up, and they find Lot. And they're with Lot, and the men of the city, the Sodomites, they came, and they're banging on the door, and they're bust, trying to bust the door down and say, hey, send those two guys out because we want to have sexual relations with them. The angels blinded them kept the door shut, and told Lot and his family, say, it's time to get out of here because we're about to destroy the city. Now, these angels knew, like, wait, that's not right. Because their angel brothers from way in the past, they made that decision to have an unholy union with human women. And so God is saying, listen, this is corrupt. Now, where we find Genesis 6, this is, this is going to get better. This is going to start to make more sense. Now, Genesis 6, it says this. Now, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, verse 11 through 13. The earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Now, if you begin to examine the Hebrew words here of corrupt there in verse 11, and I'll talk about how they corrupted their way upon the earth, it reveals this, that the creation itself was destroying itself with unholy unions. Look it up yourself, study it yourself, look up the Hebrew words, and you'll find what I'm talking about is to be true. They were creating sexual immorality. There was these unholy unions, and the outcome of these unholy unions and this sexual immorality was violence, rape, murder, kidnapping, and everything else. 
And so we find this supported in Romans 1. It says that, that they traded, they swapped the incorruptible image of God for a corruptible image of birds and beasts and immoral things. God's holy and good sexual union for humans is this. I want you to hear me very clearly. It's one adult man and one adult woman. Amen? That's, that's God's holy union. He said, this is what I'm calling good. This is a monogamous marriage covenant. Any type of sex outside of the marriage covenant is a diversion from God's perfection and a perversion of God's design. So when you understand that and you go to Deuteronomy and you go to Leviticus, it all starts to make sense. You're like, oh, I understand. God is forbidding unholy unions, not just homosexuality, but adultery, polygamy, pedophilia, bestiality, incest, rape, fornication. God says, listen, anything outside of the holy covenant that I have established is unholy. Why does God have a problem with these unions? I think it really comes down to understanding God's love. Just like we sing today about God's love. God's expression of love, hear me, is righteousness and fruitfulness. When you get into unions that are unholy, they are not righteous. They are not fruitful. Hear me, I'm going to be very clear about this. A man and a man does not produce a baby. That's not fruitful right? A woman and a woman is not producing a baby. Those are unholy unions. And anything like those as we, as we see in Scripture, why? It corrupts. It damages. It, it creates long-term collateral damage, not just for the people, but also for society. There's, now, there's a pushback with that, and people think, well, okay, wait a second. Doesn't God want people to be in love? Absolutely. He wants them to experience love. He wants them to express love inside of his holy parameters and his boundaries. The problem is not about a desire to love or a desire to be loved. The problem is there's a diversion and perversion of God's plan and his creation. And unholy unions do that. And unholy unions create a crumbling, so to speak, of Moral fabric in every society. Now, who in here, you like history? Man, you like reading stuff about history. Probably about half of you, right? Listen, you study, do a study on the Assyrians, do a study on the Babylonians, do a study on the Greeks, do a study on the Romans. Let's pick out the Romans for just, for just a second. Do you know the Roman Empire was a powerful empire? It was the longest-running human empire on the history of the earth, right? The, nobody could defeat the Roman army. But how in the world did the Roman Empire crumble? From within. Their, the moral fabric of their society collapsed because of sexual immorality and things that were tied to it. So sexual corruption and violence filled the earth. And so here's the thing. God had no choice but to start all over with one family. Now, watch this. Because this, is where, this is the best part of the message. Genesis 6, 9 says, Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless. Uh, one version says that he was perfect in his time or his generation. Noah walked with who? He walked with God. Now, when we look at the word blameless or perfect, we think, oh, wait, so Noah was sinless? No. 
No, he, he had sin. But what does that word mean? It means unblemished and undefiled genetically. Noah's genetics were the closest to God's original design. So what did God do? God says, okay, I got this one family who's not been tainted by the rest of the world. I'm going to restart the planet Earth with Noah and his family. Now, guys, I want you to get this because maybe you don't see this, but God hit me right between the eyes with this this week when I read that part. Do you realize, do you realize that you right now, that you're alive right now by the mercy and love of God? Do you realize that God, if he wanted to, back in Genesis 6, he could have chosen, if he wanted to, says, you know what? It's all a mess. I'm just going to destroy every creature, and I'm going to destroy even the humans that I made in my image. Do you know he could have done that? But his love says, you know what? I care about these people that I made. I care about them so much and so enough that I'm going to actually wipe the earth clean and start all over, start fresh and cleanse it. And I'm going to take this family and I'm going to reproduce and repopulate the earth with, from Noah and his family. You and I are descendants of Noah. Amen. And so we have been given a second chance as people. Amen. Now, here's the thing. God... The Son, Jesus, is coming again for another restart very soon. But this is what Jesus says in Matthew 24. For the coming of the Son of Man, he's speaking of the second coming, will be just like the days of what? Noah. They were giving in marriage. The word giving in means they gave up and they gave out. There were all kinds of unions then people were giving up and giving out on those covenants that they had decided. And God says, listen, just like the days of Noah, so be the Son of Man. When He comes, the earth is going to be just like that. Genesis 6, 18 through 19, we'll try to wrap up here. But watch what God says to Noah. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. So in this very moment, God makes a covenant with Noah. And I love this story because here, here's Noah enters into an ark what was it made out of? Wood, right? And then what did they do? What did they cover it with? They covered it with, does anybody know? Tar or pitch, right? It was sealed. And when we look at this, we see the love and the mercy of God saving Noah and his family. And this is a beautiful picture of what God did by making a covenant with us through his son Jesus. You see, Noah's provided a wooden ark. You and I are provided a wooden cross. And the covering that we have is the blood of Jesus. It's not pitch or tar, but we have the blood of Jesus covering our sin. And we, get this, you and I are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. It's a beautiful story back then and even now of what we see in God's love and mercy and grace toward us. God entered his covenant with Noah, not because he was sinless. God entered a covenant with us, not because we were sinless. We were enemies of God, but God reconciled us through Jesus Christ because we are sinners. 
And we live in a corrupt world full of sexual immorality and full of violence, just like the days of Noah. Now, we don't have giant Nephilim monsters running around the countryside. Aren't you glad of that, right? You say, yeah, I'm glad we don't have those running around around here. But good. But we, we don't have that, but we do have corruption on every level. We have a giant problem with immorality and violence in our society. We have sexual monsters, deviance, depravity, distorting the image of God, destroying our world again. And the great news is this, is that Jesus is returning to restart. Amen? And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to set up a millennial, 1,000-year-long kingdom, and it's going to be perfect. It's going to be peaceful. It's going to be pure. And he's inviting those that want to trust him and say, you know, I want to escape the defilements of the world. I want to escape this perverse generation. I want to put all my faith and all my trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And Jesus will look at that just like he looked at that second criminal on the cross who says, you know what, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Jesus, I put all my faith and trust in you. You're my Lord of my life. And Jesus will rescue us. And guess what? You get to be part of God's millennial kingdom. Amen. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be kind of like heaven on earth. So I hope that you make that choice that you decide that that's what you want for your life. But today, I hope that you understand why God had to send the flood to start all over, to end the corruption. And God is going to, he's a God of second chances, amen? Thanks for listening to the Momentum Life podcast. To find out more about Momentum Church, visit MomentumChurchAZ.com.